Off the Ball Daily. A home for your favourite podcasts from Off the Ball. You had to be there, the performance rankings, a slight tangent and the crappy quiz. Have you ever done therapy, Adrian? Specifically related to the crappy quiz, though. Subscribe to the Off the Ball Daily podcast feed right now. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. It's so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. You had to be there. Right, this week's episode of You Had To Be There, Keith Tracy is with us. Keith, we're getting caught there chatting in the ad break. How are you? Yeah, chatting away, sorry. Yeah, all good. How are you? Um, you were saying this wasn't that easy in the end? No, I've, I have a very poor memory. Anybody who uh, anybody who knows my history will know I, I had a about six or seven year period where I just went on to drink uh, crazy. So it was quite hard to remember, but my friend Google dug me out of a hole anyway and some memories in there as well. Right. Um, when did you play for Ireland? What What years? What years? Uh, oh, see now that's a curveball. See, my memory, my memory is knackered. I'll get your Wikipedia here. Yeah, here we go. Twenty ten um, is what your Wikipedia says. Yeah, well, I go with Wikipedia. It was all under Trapatoni. It was about a two year period, I think. I was in the Irish team and an awful lot of squads, but not so many caps. And how close were you? Did you feel to getting games? Because uh, uh, none, none of the games you played are in your list. That's what I'm going to ask him about this. Yeah, but they weren't great games. I think the only game I started for Ireland was against Northern Ireland in the in the Nations League, which right. wasn't great. But even the Argentinian game, I, I come on and Messi played. But, you know, it's individual performance and Messi wasn't great that day. Di Maria was good, but not outstanding. And I thought he was close, but Damien Duff was, was hanging on for his 100th cap. And it was sorted. Like it was never said to me that. Oh, listen, as soon as Damien Stone, you'll be in because McGeady was there, Hunty was there, Liam Lawrence was there. There was an awful lot of good wingers, but I always felt that once Duff got to his hundred caps, maybe it would open up a little bit for me. But you know, as it as it happened, it didn't quite turn out like that. Okay. So the criteria for this for people who are, are uh, just coming to this is that uh, great individual performances that stand out, uh, and you had to be there. Mm. That's it. Uh, actually had to be there um, so you picked four football and one boxing we're going to start with uh, the Republic of Ireland versus Brazil this is Ronaldinho in 2004 um, this is, I presume is it, is it Lansdowne or is it a Crow Park Lansdowne. no Lansdowne, Lansdowne yeah. yeah what do you remember about this it, it wasn't I was at this game we, uh, the club I played for Belvedere used to sell programmes at the game so we'd sell programmes and about 10 minutes after the game kicked off we'd get to, we'd get to go down and watch it and I remember just some of the names being on it, Ronaldinho, Cafu, Roberto, Carlos, Kaká, uh, Ronaldo, the r Ronaldo, obviously. and like it, it wasn't a great game of football. Irish, Ireland were there to try and try and get a result, but just Ronaldinho's movement and being able to take the ball under pressure. You know, there was, At that age, I was 14 and I was watching Ronaldinho. And it, he, he wasn't nutmegging people, flicking the ball over his head as, as he would do. He wasn't entertaining people. Just to have a player a yard away and say, yeah, give me the ball. It, it it just opened me eyes to being marked and not being marked and being able to get the ball when you can have the ball and just how strong he was when he got it. You know, people were literally flying in to try and get him off the ball and he was just bouncing them off him. And I think that was probably my first look at a real world class player. And yeah, it, it stuck with me. Although his individual performance, like I say, it wasn't outstanding. There was just little things in it that thought if I could be able to do that, it'd go a long way to making me a player. It's funny how um, watching football matches is totally different depending on, I, I find depending on where you are in the stadium if you're at ground level I always find it much more physically impressive yeah. like it, it's a it's a tactical and technical battle and you can see space and you're wondering why people don't shoot from much further out when you're up high you're like oh, just shoot yeah it looks easy yeah. yeah but when you're actually on the ground level I remember being completely astonished when um, Ireland played France and Zidane was there I was like 
what's the big deal? But then you're like, oh my God, it's like so physically imposing creation of space with, with almost no movement, just like a shimmy. And I suspect it's a little bit like that with Ronaldinho where like, you know, he's obviously very busy and he's a, it's a much smaller, shorter running style, but the, the quick it, movements. His fourth touch it was unbelievable. And, you know, as a player, you start to try and get try and get ahead and you think, well, if he's going to touch it there, I'll jump ahead of the touch. But he can control it where he studs the outside of his foot. He, he just keep his body in the way and hold you off. And if you, if you got a little bit too aggressive and tried to nick the ball, he'd just make an absolute show. Yeah, he really would. So, look, everybody knows how good Ronaldinho was. He was unbelievable. And there were so many players in that team, but he was the one that stood out as the entertainer, as the one who would, you know, nobody wanted to go flying into him because they know he he would just make a, an absolute show. Yeah. And it was peak Ronaldinho. It was Barcelona Ronaldinho at that time as well. Like, it's funny, I, I, I think I was 10 or 11 at this match as well, and your your memory sometimes plays tricks on you, but I remember an unbelievable atmosphere for a friendly. Yeah. It's because it's Brazil, obviously, but it's funny how it's one of those games that will always stick out if you're at it. Yeah, well, I remember, like I said, I finished uh, selling the programmes about, say, five minutes, ten minutes into kick-off. They tell you, lads, you can go and watch the game now. And as I'm walking around the one end of Lansdowne Road to get to the other end of it, the Bat, end, the bat Avenue end I was walking around to, there was just all these samba dancers with Brazil flags and the atmosphere was unreal. And the game had kicked off. Yeah. But in the stadium, it was just bouncing. It was, like I say, for a friendly, it was really, really good. Yeah. Next one is Liverpool against Blackburn. This is... In 2009, in April 2009, Fernando Torres, it's Liverpool 4, Blackburn 0. But you are on the field for this one. Yeah, thanks for that. I, yeah, I was on the field for this one. This uh, this was the Hillsborough disaster, um, the anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster. So we went out and we, we Stephen Warnock, a, 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 a scouser that was playing for Blackburn, he laid the wreath and we started Chris Samba up front, started me on the right wing, Keith Andrews played right back. There was an awful lot of people, uh, square pegs in, in round holes. But Sam was a centre back, right? A centre back, about six foot six centre back. So the the plan was to get the ball out to me on the right wing, being left footed, I'd come back and chip it to the back post, and Samba would be there, and we'd get runners in into the boxer, into the box. So a, a great plan from from Aladoy. So we were we were one 0 down after twenty <laughs> seconds in that game, but the, the goal from Torres, I think uh, I think we kicked off lost lost possession, gave gave possession to Liverpool. Carragher got the ball, chipped it into Torres. And Ryan Nelson, and I, I can't remember who the other end of half was because Chris, Chris Samba was up front. He, uh, Torres takes a, a touch on his chest. He's facing the wrong way and he just puts the ball into the top corner. And after 30 seconds, you're thinking... Great plan. Oh, this is going to be tough. <laughs> but then, then they missed a chance, missed another chance. And I, I was thinking that, that was an unbelievable finish from Torres. And I was thinking, yeah, he's a decent player, but you, you know, we expect him to score goals like that. He, he was... You know, went for fifty million to Chelsea, Spanish international. But all of a sudden, they got a free kick out in the right wing. I think it was it was Keith Andrews who gave it away, and the ball come, gets whipped in, and Christopher Sam is about to head it, and Torres just come and put him on his back and put the ball into the back of the net with his head. And you're thinking, this Torres boy has everything. He can head it. He can score fantastic goals. His walk rate was good, and he was nasty as well. He would leave a couple of studs in on him as well. He had everything, and that was the one one game I came away and thought. Torres is the real deal he was really really good Did that happen to you often as a footballer where you're like I have expectations played against everybody you've seen good players in training at various stages you know I think probably by that stage you're already or maybe just getting into the Ireland squad so um, you know you certainly played international the whole way up um, as an underage so you'd seen really really top quality players were there many occasions where you're like oh he is actually special no, to be honest, like I'd love to say it happened an awful lot that I came away thinking, oh, he was brilliant and he was outstanding, but it, it happened quite, late, quite 
rarely I was taken back by players and think, my God, he was outstanding. And even now, the Torres one is, you know, he's outstanding, brilliant, played excellent in that game. But he had the backup of Xavi Alonso, Mascherano in the middle as well. So even when we had chances to hurt Liverpool, they were, they had good defensive players on the pitch as well. But in terms of being knocked back, like I, I always think of Messi and Ronaldo. And look, at Ronaldo... Uh, put me back he was obviously an outstanding player so was Messi but in terms of when I played against Messi uh, in the Aviva against Argentina he actually wasn't that good he'd done an awful lot of walking around so in terms of his individual performance he wasn't great but yeah it didn't didn't happen as much as you, you would think it might, it might have Was there an aura about Torres? Yeah at that time there was a definite everybody was afraid of him I, I remember sitting in the dressing room and speaking to you know, two guys, all, all the older heads, and they were all scared of Torres. They all wanted to. Where's Torres from corner kicks? Where is he going to be from second balls? And obviously, with Chris Hamble in front, you're thinking, just stay in the game, linger in. We'll play for set pieces. We'll get something, get the crowd quiet, and you know, we're one nil down after 30 seconds. It was a great goal, and yeah, we got it right down that day, and it was mostly down to Torres. Uh, and just reading the post-match comments here I think there was a little bit of fear in the team says Sam Allardyce and he sounds like he was correct uh, we should have got tighter instead we just let them play their game plan uh, there'll be a lot of twists and turns yet but they certainly believe they can do it that's what Liverpool winning the title uh, this is under Rafa is this the Rafa fax season it probably is is it yeah, yeah. Mm. Is it? themselves and United were going for the United ended up winning the title didn't they Oh nine. Liverpool were certainly in contention in this game because this was eight, this would have been April. I can't find team sheets, but Daniel Agar scores as well. I think. Yeah, he scored a cracker. He scored a tort goal. It was a, a long range drive. A centre half team here. Yeah. Oyer was he the? Was he would he have gone centre half if Samba was Andre was Uyer, Yeah, he'd have been right back. Yeah, Robinson and goals and Jive Mukwena, two guy Andrews Warnock McCarthy and Jufia. Yeah, it's a good it's a good Blackburn team. And they, but look at the Liverpool. Is that El Hadji Juf? El Hadji Juf. Yeah. On your team, hmm. loves that like as a teammate. <laughs> I, I didn't spend an awful lot of time on him to be honest he wasn't my cup of tea Jufi was a, a very very unique character to, to, to sum him up right, this, this is a, a quick story to sum El Hadj Jufi up he went on I can't remember which manager this was at on the Blackburn but he went on loan to Rangers and he won the league with Rangers and he came back down we were in the middle of a relegation battle possibly going to get relegated and Juve drives in with a week to go in the Premier League season. The, the Scottish League was over. He'd won the league. He came down showing everybody his medal from Scotland, thinking we'd all think it was brilliant. But you know, he got told where to go quickly enough. He, um, yeah, I'm he was inspire my teammates with my medal. Look, look. <laughs> my medal from the Scottish I, I, Premier yeah. League is winning the relegation. Are you having crack while you're? Um, yeah. yeah. How are your win bonuses, lads? Yeah, well, <laughs> he was all about the money. Very, very flash guy, but. Good player, but not for me. You had Benny McCarthy in that team as well, and he's now doing serious things at Manchester United mm. as, as forwards coach. I know the likes of Marcus Rashford speaks speaks very, very highly of him. Are you surprised that he's gone on to that sort of successful coaching career? Or was that always on the on the cards? Um, possibly a little bit surprised because I came I came across Benny at Blackburn, and Benny done really, really well for a while. But then he came out of the team and. Uh, Again, I'm not sure which manager this is, if it, if it was Allardyce or Ince or, or Mark Hughes, but he, he started putting a little bit of weight on, so he was thrown into the fat club and he, he sort of had to dig his heels and lose a bit of weight. And Benny Benny was Benny. Benny didn't change for anybody. He did what he did. And we, we never really got the best out of him. Hugely, hugely talented boy, but we never really got the best out of him. And like I say, when... It's not that he was unprofessional, but Benny was Benny. He didn't change for anybody. So to say if we could see him doing what he's doing now at Manchester United, and not really because, like I said, I, I didn't see him in that sort of light because he was an outstanding footballer and didn't try it too much. But 
I think once you once you finish playing football, I'm starting to realise now. You know, coaching and managing is a, is a great great way to stay within the game and, and feel involved. Mm. Um, the Fat Club was it actually called the Fat Club? It was called the Fat Club. Yeah, right. there, was, there was no messing around. It was the Fat Club. Right. Eight o'clock every morning. And how many of the team would have been in the Fat Club? Um, probably no more than a handful, maybe five at most. So it was a serious, serious enough thing to be in. Like everybody knew about it. Yeah, everybody knew about it. It was 8 o'clock in the morning. You would be on the rower, swimming, running, whatever it was, and then you'd have your training session, and then after your training session, you'd be back into the fat club for another session, and you'd be getting your body fats done two or three times a week until it was where they wanted it to be. Right. Were you ever in it? Constantly. Oh, right. <laughs> Always but, in it. But not a pick on you? No, well, no. When I first came over from, from Ireland, they said I was skinny. I, I was the fattest, skinniest person they ever met, because I was, I was no fat on me, but I was chubby somehow. Right. And no muscle, but... Yeah, then I, I got a little bit of money and just started drinking and it got a little bit heavier, heavier, heavier. And yeah, me talent mass an awful lot of it, but the the sports scientists were never happy with me. I was, I was a, a fixture in the fat club. And if you could go back now, what would, like, what would, would you hire a nutritionist? Would that be like, you know, when you get money instead of going drinking, if you could spend that on like your body and science, what would you do? I don't know I don't know whether I get a nutritionist and all that because when I, when I come out of the training ground I like to disconnect completely from the football I, I think you need the mental rest you need the physical rest and I, I don't know if if I could do it all again I would be an awful lot more professional I used to think that I would play till I, till I was 35 and then that would be me and I'd ride off into the sunset with all the money in the world you know it, it, I I just thought my talent would do that I didn't realise the mental side would have to weigh up with the with me with me talent and that was it. I just never had the the mental side of the game down whatsoever, and you know, for so so many years, people were saying you're so talented, you'd be grand. I never had the mental fight in me, and there was some demons that I obviously had to had to go and correct before I I could move on. But yeah, looking back, I probably would have been the best thing to go and get a nutritionist and have all that stuff outside of the ground. But or even if the club did it for you, like it sounds like your diet wasn't great apart from the drinking. Is yeah, that- no, my diet was shocking as well. Yeah, it was, you know, with a couple of drinks and you don't want a bowl of pasta, day, you end up with a with a donut kebab or something. But yeah, maybe that would have been the way forward. But you have to imagine like football's come on leaps and bounds since I finished it. It wasn't like that. Very few people had. I think probably a couple of boys at United at the big boys had nutritionists at home. You know. Yeah. Not uh, not your so-called lower teams wouldn't have been that deep into it. Yeah, okay. Um, so Liverpool versus Blackburn, that goal that Fernando Torres scored, I've just found it on YouTube, you can Google it. It's a, it is sensational. Next one is Leeds versus Preston. This is in September 2018. John Parkins scores a hat-trick. You're playing in this, you're, you've moved to Preston at this stage. This is yeah. the next season. Yeah, I've gone to Preston. Um, this is the craziest game ever. And this is a real one you'd have to be there because, you know, I don't imagine a lot of people will, would have seen this on, uh, you know, YouTube and on, on the social media. It's a 6-4 win for Preston against Leeds. Yeah, we, and we were 4-1 down at half-time. It, right. it was a r- ridiculous game. Darren Ferguson was the manager. And I remember I, I set up the first goal. I had a shot. The goalkeeper parries it and, and Parkey taps it in for 1-0. And then all of a sudden... I think uh, Steve Bruce, Alex Bruce's son, Alex Bruce, Steve Bruce's son, scored a header, and all of a sudden I'm in the dressing room and Darren Ferguson, we're four one down and we're getting an earful. And the one thing he said after was, "Lads, we're not out of this. If we get the next goal, we could win this." And we're all thinking, mm, "Let's just not get beaten here too badly." But then we we go out. I, I ended up scoring a cor- scoring directly from a corner, and I, I did mean it. The the manager used to tell me to shoot from corners directly, so. I did it and luckily I went straight in the back of the net but Parkey when you look at his goals he scores a tap in he gets one on his chest swivels scores and 
look at him there like the, the heaviest footballer you've seen I was in the fat club I can only imagine what sort of club park he was in but <laughs> he was he was an outstanding footballer the most unprofessional fat heavy he used to say when we were running you can't teach an old dog new tricks he wouldn't run for managers he wouldn't do running sessions but he turned it on against Leeds and I haven't seen anybody play that well in Ellen Road and I don't think anybody's ever scored six in Ellen Road. I think Preston is still the right. only team to do it. Right. Wow. Okay. I think so. I'm not 100% sure, but as far as I know, we're the only team to ever score six there. And look, uh, Ellen Road at that stage, I presume the Leeds fans are still pissed off about the fact that they're not in the Champions League because it's still in the memory of all the fans who were on the terraces uh, sitting in their seats that this was a team who were in the Champions League semi-final you know, 10 years previous. So um, it, it, does, it seems alien now, that, to mm. that whole notion. But for that, Group four went up at half time and cruising against Preston. Like this is you know yeah. good times are coming back. But and to be fair, that that's what was going on in my head. That was I think probably my second or third time I played in Ellen Road, and I I had that. I was thinking of Harry Kewell playing and Mark Viduka. I was thinking of all these boys running around playing in the Champions League, and it did. It, it just had that. Even well, like I obviously haven't played in Ellen Road now in a while, but it, it just had that feeling of a special special ground. And maybe that's just the way I was brought up. There's a couple of Leeds fans in me, in my family and. Yeah, Ellen Road is a special place for me and, you know, to go and beat them 6-4 there and there were some Christmas DVDs brought out as well from it from Preston. So, look, it was a great game and Parky to score a hat-trick was outstanding. Brilliant uh, brilliant performance from him. Did you score twice? No, I scored once. Okay, you'll take it. What's the atmosphere like at Ellen Road for, for an away team? It's brilliant. It's really good. I, I think it's like any any of the, the big away games, like St. James's, Old Trafford, anywhere, the Emirates, wherever you're going, you have to try and kill the crowd. It's, it's a lot easier said than done, but you know when we went 1-0 up, the crowd started getting a bit iffy, but then obviously they blew us out of the water, and it's 4-1, it's bouncing again, and thankfully we managed to wrestle it back, and you know... The, to be fair, like when you now I look at things from a coaching side, and for Darren Ferguson to be saying that four one, we're not out of this lads, and we're all thinking he's a bit crazy. To go back and win it was excellent, and like I said, mostly down to down to John Parkins hat trick. What was Ferguson like as a manager? He was he was okay. He could be a bit tiff for tat at times. I I done a couple of things to annoy him, and he would be quite reactive in things, but. He never let it linger too far. He would discipline you, give you the slap on the wrist, and then then he would move on quite quickly, but. But the one thing that stuck was me was when he actually he got uh, he got sacked from Preston a couple of months later, and we had Danny Welbeck, Matty James, uh, a right back as well, the lat I think a right back, all all from Manchester United alone. And as soon as Darren Ferguson got sacked, all gone. Alex pulled them all out of the club the next day, and that was that was the best thing for Manchester United though. Yeah, so, yeah, that that came up in uh, Roy Keane's when he was at. Um the Borgosh energy that came up as one of those when he's mid Roy, when he was mid Alex Ferguson rant he was like oh what about your son it's like, right. well yeah it's all true because it, yeah. even in the, the winter that, that year we would train in Carrington because our, our training ground would be frozen so Darren would ring around and say lads we're training in Carrington today and we'd get our own pitch in, in Manchester and then as soon as that was handy as soon as Darren lost his job all them perks went straight out the window I've gone down an internet hole here on John Parkin's Wikipedia page oh, this look. is quite incredible like his, uh, his diet during the day never went to the gym Large portions, uh, so tuna crunch sandwich for lunch, bag of crisps, pepperoni pizza, steak bake, and either a bacon and cheese turnover or a sausage bean and cheese melt. Full English before training as well, just to, just to add into it. Known for his pranks and misadventures. Transfer deadline day, playing for Preston, he covertly changes his, his own name in teammate Chris Sedgwick's mobile phone contact list to the name of Sedgwick's agent before repeatedly calling him from his own phone. Uh, Sedgwick excited that a big transfer move was imminent, but um, not to be. And there's also a story about a golf buggy. 
uh, crashing down a hill as well. Bit of a character, it seems. Yeah, well, Parky was uh, Parky was crazy. I'm doing a show with him next week uh, in the board. Gosh, under, under the kosher coming over, and Parky will be there. He's he was a very very unique character. He came across a couple of unique characters in my time, but. Like I said, it, it probably rubbed off on me. I'm looking at players like this that are the most unprofessional players and they're going scoring hat-tricks in Ellen Road and maybe I, I was attracted to people like that when I shouldn't have been. But great fella, great guy and if, great player, but not a great professional. If Leeds had won that day, they would have gone second in the table. That like that, And that 4-1 up at home and you can see how, and that would have been like definitely favourites probably at that stage of the early part of the season to to go back up I don't know if they did go back up when, I don't know, actually remember how long remember, it took like I said <laughs> so that's Leeds versus Preston the next one is Sheffield Wednesday against Wickham uh, Michael Antonio's playing yeah this is a we had to I went on loan to Sheffield Wednesday about I think there was a month left in the season I hadn't been playing at Burnley and, and Dave Jones rings me um, would you come on loan for the last the last uh, month of the season Keith and I told him I straight I said listen I'm not fit I've been taking liberties with my fitness and he said, listen, as long as your left foot works, we'll take you. And I went on loan. And we played, I think we played Brentford. We beat Brentford the week before and it came down. If we if we beat Wickham at home, we're automatically up. We'd, we'd pip Sheffield uh, United to second place. So Wickham come. And we, I think Wickham were already relegated. And like we're get, on the Friday, we, we're getting phone calls from the police saying, get to the ground early. There's going to be 40,000 fans there early. You're going to be stuck in traffic. So we had to get there early. The place was bouncing. There was loyalos everywhere, beach balls bouncing around. It was unbelievable. And do you remember Gary Doherty, the Irish international? Oh, yeah. He played centre half for Wickham, and Mikel Antonio played up front for us. Right. And I think Mikel was probably 18, maybe just turned 18, and he bullied Gary. He bullied Gary all over the place. And anybody who knows how good of a player Gary Doherty was, yeah. it was a tough thing to do to bully him. And he scored the first goal, like you said, the, the fans were bouncing, but there was this air that we had to win. They were demanding that we won it. And Mick goes and gets us the first goal. It was a brilliant goal. and the way he dealt with the occasion for such a young lad you know I, I would have been probably 24, 25 and I, I was feeling the nerves but for, for Mikel to react the way he did play the way he did and to like I say to bully Gary Doherty was a, was not an easy thing at that level especially at that age and we ended up winning promotion after that game and it just it just left a little note in my head that I think Mikel Antonio could be something special here and obviously his career has gone on to prove that uh, There's a pitch invasion afterwards yeah, there was a pitch invasion. It was a little bit scary, to be honest with I'd you. I'd say, yeah. I was, I was on the right wing, and no, I think I got taken off with a couple of minutes to go, so I managed to just dart down the tunnel. But uh, yeah, we came back out, and the fans were still there, and the beers were flowing. It, brilliant, you know. It was probably one of the best decisions I made, because I, I really didn't want to go to Sheffield Wednesday, because I didn't think I'd do myself justice, uh, not being too fit. But when I got that feeling of the promotion, it, it made it all worthwhile, and just went to show how big of a club Wednesday were did Dave Jones know you from before no I'd, I'd never never played for him um, but he, he was adamant he wanted to take me he he actually told me go and rings X, Y and Z do your homework on me I'll be the manager that you'll, you'll thrive under and yeah it was right and look it was nearly actually I nearly went to Sheffield Wednesday after it uh, they put a bid in but it wasn't what Burnley wanted so it didn't happen and I ended up staying at Burnley but Really, really enjoyed my time, and it just it left a little mental note about Mikel. And do you have any regrets? He didn't sign for Dave Jones. Would I'd, I? I wanted to at the time. I definitely, definitely wanted to go to Sheffield Wednesday. Like I, I, I played for Sheffield United already. I knew the city. I'd, I, I was comfortable in the city, and the fans seemed to take to me after getting promoted. I thought it was all going to be good, but 
look, I, I had a meeting with the Burnley, uh, with the Burnley chairman at the time, and Eddie Howe was not not far from going back home. I think his mother was ill at the time, so there was a new manager going to be coming into Burnley. So they were reluctant to let me go with Sean Dyche coming in the door. We didn't know it was going to be Sean yeah. Dyche at the time, but we knew a new manager was coming. So I think they wanted to give a new manager a crack at me, okay, to see if they could sort me out. See, so yeah, and you ended up liking Dyche. Yeah, it it worked well for uh, for the. Two and a half years, I think we were together. It worked really well. I, I, like I said, I was at a time where I was actually ready to go. I was finished, and Dice just pumped another two and a half years into me. Right, that sounds like a bit of a um, Lampard Tuchel situation at Sheffield Wednesday that season. Gary Megson has the job, three defeats in a row in February, gets the sack uh, with promotion still in the balance. But then Dave Jones comes in, wins ten of the last twelve games, and Milan Mandrich was the chairman. The, there you go. The previous guy who obviously had um, taken Harry Redknapp to Portsmouth and won the mm. FA Cup with them, and then. Left and then I think you know there was some investigations. Uh, yeah, well, I, just, I, I need to do I, a bit I of reading met, before I talk about them. I met Milan Mandrich once. It was it was after this game. I was walking down the tunnel and all of a sudden the lads had said, oh, "We're going to Marbella for a couple of days as a as a celebration." So I thought well, the championship was still going. Burnley season was actually had another week to go. So I thought Eddie Howe rang me and said, "You, you need to come back to Burnley for the last week." And Milan Mandrich actually said, "No, he's going to Marbella with the right. lads." So, yeah, I, I had nothing but good things to say about Milan. <laughs> Got a free did trip he, to Marbella. Did he put you up in, like, was it his gaff or was it a hotel? Oh, no, it was a big five-star hotel, couple of days, all expenses paid. We uh, had really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. well, hence, I, I barely remember the football match, so it was a really good, really good <laughs> couple of days. Uh, okay, so your last you had to be there is actually a fight between Carfrotch and George Groves. This is the first fight in Manchester in 2013. It's kind of hard to remember just exactly how big the Frotch Groves fights were. It 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 turns Frotch into a kind of a global superstar in boxing. Yeah, this like I love me boxing. I'm obviously I'm not a, I'm not an expert, but I love watching boxing. I I bought ringside seats for this. I paid through me nose for two seats. Brought one of my mates over from Dublin, and I can't remember. I was playing a game that during the day, and obviously this was at night. And I turned up, and wherever me, I couldn't, I couldn't get me tickets, couldn't get me hands on me tickets to the ringside tickets. So I had to, obviously, with me mate being over from Dublin, Keith, I, I had to buy more tickets outside, and ended oh, up no. sitting in the last. I had me back to the wall. Oh the no! End. But look, it was a brilliant. It was like something out of a Rocky movie. It really was. I, I remember George Groves in the build-up saying, "I'm going to meet Frotch in the centre of the ring, and I'm going to land one on his chin." And Frotch just laughed and said, "If you do that, I'll kill you." And George Groves did it like because I was sitting at the back there was a load of uh, Cockneys in front of me all George Groves fans and the whole MEN is bound when he comes out the whole MEN is probably three or four Cockneys in front of me cheering for Groves by the end of it the whole MEN is giving George Groves a standing ovation even though he got beaten he was brilliant he he dropped dropped Frotch in the first the first round I think it was late in the first round unsteady on his legs everybody's thinking the ref's going to stop it the ref lets it go and George Groves outboxed him for the whole whole fight and then Frotch gets on, on top late in it and I still think it was a premature stoppage and look it was a brilliant brilliant fight but George Groves that night didn't know an awful lot about him but he was outstanding he's counter punching and just the way he went about things they stopped it in the ninth round mm. yeah I thought I thought it was a very very premature stoppage I have to be honest I think in that fight Frotch was in a lot worse situations and the ref let it go Groves got into a little bit of a sticky situation and the ref was very keen to jump in and stop it the three judges had Groves ahead so 78-73 76-75 76-75 so clearly Groves was mm. Heading towards victory when it when it's a really controversial finish to it. 
Yeah, like I said, it was a, it was a brilliant, brilliant fight. The, the best thing was the, the atmosphere, you know, Sweet Caroline and all that started coming. The atmosphere is absolutely bouncing. And then when Groves hits Frotch on the chin and he goes down, you could hear the pin drop. For about five seconds, the whole place just went silent. And then it burst in, into a huge atmosphere again. And like I said, everybody, would have been in Manchester and George Groves being from down south, Frotch obviously only being from Nottingham, Everybody was on Frotch's side, but it was like something out of a Rocky film. It really was. Build in and cheered out. It was excellent stuff, and his individual performance that night was outstanding. Uh, I think he'd been playing Bristol City that day. Would that, would that make sense? I'm just trying to look the... Uh, <laughs> the, that, the that would make sense, yeah, if that's why I was late to go and collect me tickets. I mean, I haven't paid through the nose. Did you ever... I presume you don't get the money back. There's just two empty no, seats no. at ringside. No, I, I, took, I had to collect them in, in a hotel close to the MEN arena. So I went to the hotel and they were... No, they're gone. Oof. I said, well, who do I ring? What do I do? Go to the MEN, you might get them there. No. That's, so that's, uh, thankfully a tout was behind me and I, I managed to get some tickets. So i seen the fight anyway, but yeah. Oh, were you a Frotch fan in advance of this or just a boxing fan generally I was just a boxing fan generally yeah like I said I didn't go to an awful lot of sporting events but I wanted to take this in because this in, in the UK at the time was built Everywhere. as the Battle of Britain yeah. everybody wanted that. and like it, the build up was excellent Groves really really sold the build, the build up to it when he was saying I, I'm going to come out and I'm going to do this and Frotch laughing at him saying you, you, you don't have the minerals to come and do this with me if you do I'll kill you and George Groves just done he'd done everything he said he was going to do in the build up to it which was um, which was outstanding Frotch obviously very charismatic famous now for thinking that the earth is flat That's uh, that came out in Matthew Macklin's podcast oh, in the wow, last yeah. week or two so he's like he's absolutely convinced you know Andy Lee was on the undercard I'm just looking here beat Ferenc Hafner and TKO in the second round that's some undercard you've Anthony Crawler Rocky Fielding Scott Quigg Luke Campbell and Andy Lee among the undercard as well so it's it's not a bad night's boxing no, well, I only seen the main event. For those who were there. there. They all sound like great fights. Yeah, I didn't yeah, see any yeah. of them. Uh, the main event was excellent. Like I said, I turned up a little bit late um, having the game, but outstanding memory, great memory for me. Uh, you were saying off air before we came on that um, you didn't go to that many sports events. It was mainly gigs. Uh, music, big music fan? Yeah, always always music. Loved uh, every, like I, I, I have a, such a random thing. I'm I going to see Blondie, going to see... Lionel Richie to from Drake to I bounce around all over the over the shop really I, I, there's no real genre of music for me it's a little bit of everything good opportunity when you were a professional footballer I presume to get decent tickets yeah well the the company staff you know would uh, your agency and stuff would have boxes in the MEM would have boxes in certain places so you just put your name down and yeah. end up getting into these um, places but very few sporting events I don't think many footballers go to football and events do they? I think it's a little bit like watching paint dry if you're a footballer You've had enough of it all day, day yeah. in, day out. Exactly, you know, you, you, you want to relax. I don't think footballers watch football to so relax. Any, if we were to ask you to do your, had to be their gigs, any specific ones stand out? Uh, probably Michael Bublé. Right. The MEN again, he, he was absolutely brilliant. But again, another story, I brought my wife and I was in row B, thought it was excellent. Again, paid through the nose to sit in these seats and he sang two songs on the stage and they built another stage down the back of the MEN and he went and sung down there <laughs> oh, went no. to turn and face the other way and I was thinking <laughs> I'm going to stop paying through the nose for these tickets because yeah. then you're in a way that stage yeah absolute uh, lottery turns out you're a romantic at heart with Michael Bublé yeah I, I love a bit of the old slow stuff yeah there you go alright uh, you learn something new every day Keith Tracy's you had to be there that was brilliant thanks a million it's so unexpected it's one of those you had to be there moments you had to be there it subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life you had to be there 